Welcome to the Sunday Poems. I'm Ken Hayda. Thank you for joining me. This is episode number 105. Today I want to talk about intertextuality. Intertextuality is uh, one of those words that uh, has nuanced meanings given uh, various contexts. Generally, it is a literary term that refers to the way one text influences another or the way one text exists because of a previous text or texts, how writing is related. This could be in a, a direct quotation or borrowing from other texts, the language or images. Um, it could be a parody, like last week I referred to Nathan Brown's parody of uh, a Wordsworth sonnet, and it could be an illusion. I referred to Koresh Lansana's allusion to Ralph Ellison in his poem last week. Allusion, translation, other textual comments all suggest intertextuality, different types of intertextuality. The function and effectiveness of, of intertextuality uh, can depend quite a bit on the reader's prior knowledge and understanding before uh, the secondary text. Parodies, allusions, etc., depend on the reader knowing what is being parried or what is being alluded to. Obviously, you don't have to know every allusion to understand a text but <clears throat> or to be impressed or interpret a meaning, but it certainly adds to and, and deepens the relationship between reader and text. Intertextuality may be part of our literary consciousness, uh, the result of all of our reading over and observing over our lifetime. And so it may almost appear naturally in the writing process. Uh, or often it is, a, it is uh, an intentional device, uh, an intentional intertextual device to respond, either positively or negatively, to make a comment on the original work and thus advance a further interpretation or enhance the existing t interpretation of the texts involved. So a text commenting on another text is also a specific type of intertextuality. And that's what I'm going to look at today, primarily, although allusions are also involved in these texts, in these poems I'm going to read. The definition of intertextuality was created by the French semiotician Juliette Cristeva in the 1960s. She created the term from the Latin word intertexto, which means to intermingle while weaving. She argues that all works of literature, uh, especially in the contemporary scene, are intertextual, Everything that's being produced uh, is somehow related to works that came before it. Uh, any text is constructed of a mosaic of quotations, she argues. Any text is the absorption and transformation of another. So in one sense, simple literary devices like allusions are intertextual, but also more developed responses, a complete poem or a story, even a novel, any piece of writing that responds to previous text is intertextual. And in the broader psychological and literary sense, as Chris Davis suggests, <clears throat> all contemporary writing is somehow at least subconsciously built upon the foundations, that is to say, the writing that has preceded us. And to me, that's one of the great challenges and joys of being a writer. It's challenging to respond intentionally to a previous text without sounding forced or contorted or too blatantly obvious. And so in this 
sense, intertextuality becomes a writing prompt, uh, a guideline that uh, structures and forces you to think your way through what you're doing. The joy of intertextuality occurs when you discover in your writing process how you have connected to other previous texts, or even more so, how other texts have arisen in response to yours, how writers have responded to your own written work, thus creating a web of meaning, a shared collection of meaning around a certain image or, or idea. And that is the case in the three poems I want to read today. The first is my poem, Persimmon Sunday, which you may have heard before. It's the title poem of my book, Persimmon Sunday. And I've often commented in public readings that this uh, poem resulted from an encounter with strangers picking up persimmons from my persimmon tree. And the poem moves into a social commentary as well as a personal reflection on the drama of autumn. Here is the poem, Persimmon Sunday. I find them beneath my persimmon tree. They quickly turn to go, though I don't feel the need to be rough with them. Fences are necessary, I suppose. They can be meddlesome, too. These gentle folks pass every Sunday to visit their boy in prison. They only want to make a pie. I only want to be asked first. A fence divides us. She promises to bring me tarts, and that seems fair. And I think about fairness and their son these days. I'm glad they visit him Sundays, and I tell them so. Their calm courtesy strikes me. Persimmon pie is part of her autumn ritual, something I cannot deny her. I don't know, don't need to know, how it is they got off the main road. They are seeking the sweetness that comes after the bitterness has ripened. Standing under a tree none of us really own, I see her boy back home years ago, gleefully eating a piece of pie. I see her husband, proud, happy, the gleam in her eye, sweet, sticky juice sliding down the boy's dimpled cheeks, dark eyes aglow as he wipes his mouth with the sleeve of a flannel shirt. And I want it to be that way again, once sour taste expunged. Afternoon gathers and we talk about a hard, killing frost that makes the sweetness, a cold, harsh night that ripens this rustic fruit. We shake hands, and I don't look back as I return through fields where yellow leaves, orange, dusty, scarlet, and intense lay about me, toss around me in the breeze that carries ladybugs unsuspecting to their graves, timber standing in reverent silence as before a judge, as if to judge. Truly, autumn is the most dramatic of days. It is a time to remember, but it is also a time to console. <clears throat> the line uh, early on in the poem about fences being necessary might remind you of Robert Frost's poem, Mending Fences. And so that <clears throat> uh, uh, allusion, perhaps, not conscious on my part, I don't think, is the type of intertextuality, but it certainly reminds readers, may remind readers of, of mending fences. Um, but for the next two poets I want to read, they're responding to my poem and specifically to the act of trespassing. So perhaps the signal, they are signaled by the line standing under a tree none of us really own. 
And this image of an idea, this act of trespassing, becomes a point of connection for the next two poems. First is Alan Bereka, <clears throat> whose poem titled Our Trespasses is a direct response to my poem Persimmon Sunday, which I just read. Here is his response. Our Trespasses. Ken Hayda's place sits squarely in the middle of nowhere, so he wonders how it is an older couple knew to climb his fence and find the tree and its dark orange fruit. He writes the question into a poem, one of my favorites, and leaves the reader without an answer. Today I listened to Ken read the poem on his podcast, and the answer came easily as the aroma of persimmon pie wafting through an autumn-aired kitchen. For the couple and the tree were old, and Ken was new to that piece of land. Memories of the autumn days of my youth spent with my father drift towards me as we hunted on the lands of unknown farmers, hunted with wicker baskets and paring knives, hunted for the scent of death, the smell of moss and decaying pine that pointed out mushrooms, the kind our women folk washed and boiled to fold into stews and garnish T-bones with. We never gave a thought to ownership as we crossed barbed wire fence after barbed wire fence in the middle of nowhere, feeling no danger, except that time a Holstein bull appeared in a meadow and began to paw the ground and snort. We abandoned the mushrooms and sprinted toward a fence, laughing like idiots once we rolled to safety. We burnt the best foraging spots deep into our brains, spots unmapped, uncharted years before a GPS could help us return to those mother loads of mushrooms year after year. So here, Bereka's poem, Our Trespasses, is a lovely image of a father and son and their autumn, their ritual of gathering mushrooms and one time when a bull chased him out of the pasture. But that was prompted by the previous poem, Persimmon Sunday, and the act of trespassing. And I should point out that um, Alan's response to my poem was not a planned act. I knew nothing about the response until he showed it to me much later after he'd written it. And also, as a sideline, it is, I think, a good writing practice to intentionally look at other poems and respond to them on demand in the moment. Uh, but the fun here is that I knew nothing about Brecker's writing of this poem until after it's completed. And that is also true for the next poem, which I didn't find out about until even later. The next poem is by Julie Chapel, and she is responding directly to Brecca's poem, which I just read, and thus indirectly to my Persimmon Sunday. So again, here the theme of trespassing is dominant, but you can see how the act of trespassing is interpreted a bit differently in each of the three poems leading to various insights related to the text of each poem. But also, of course, how there is a common emotional response which makes the poems possible in the first place. So the act of intertextuality is evident, demonstrating how one idea or concept or image or line can trigger, inspire uh, negatively or positively invent new poetry from pre-existing poetry. So here is Julie Chapel's poem titled Forgive Our Trespasses, which of course immediately uh, makes you think of the, the New Testament 
words of Christ to forgive our trespasses, and indeed she'll end with that allusion later on. Julie's poem is directly responding to Alan Barreca's poem, which I just read. Forgive our trespasses. As I read a poet friend's poem about the days that he and his father trespassed on others' country land to hunt and gather as all our forebears did to find food, I think of that distant past when people banded together to protect their own hunting and gathering areas from incursions, trespasses of other groups. Primitive times, we say, but the only difference from then to now is the invention of ownership, the fence, to control the wild aurochs, their descendants tamed, feeding us their milk, their flesh, their hides, covering us head to foot. My family owned land, raised the long-since domesticated Guernsey and Holsteins roaming free within our fence, enjoying the creek that ran naturally along the east side of the pasture, the shade made by scores of trees, one so large that it once took a small band of family and friends stretched fingertip to fingertip to surround its girth. Like our ancient ancestors, we burnt some of the wood of those trees out in our field, to roast meats from our pigs and drink the cool water of the natural stream on our land. When I was about 12, I remember my mother's righteous anger when we caught two children about my age preparing to climb over our fence one afternoon. My mother stopped the car to chastise them for their arrogant trespass. They had the audacity of youth to challenge her right to ancestral land to a hundred years of nurturing there. Yet her care that day was not the trespass of ownership, but the potential danger from what awaited them on that land, leading their group to threaten to punish her family if those children were injured or killed as they roamed the pasture. What if they encounter your uncle's Holstein bull and get trampled? Or if they drown in the creek? Or run across the many copperheads that lurk in the grass? Or worse... That same year, the city was encroaching on our borders, threatening tax beyond our capacity, so we sold the land. Developers divided it carefully into the smallest pieces to give other groups the right to hunt, to gather, to forge the creek. But when the bottomland flooded, as we knew it would, and they cut down all the trees, killed off the water creatures in the creek, and turned its clear, rippling waters to sewer scum, we cried for our loss and theirs. What will future archaeologists discover here when we are all dust and moldy bone, when they uncover a shadow of a fence post, skeletons of crawdads and snapping turtles and a layer of ancient creek mud? Will they get the story straight? Will they romanticize or rationalize the dead creek, the bones they find there as they trespass on our past. And then Julie ends the poem with the Latin, et dimit nobis devita nostra sicut et nos dimitimus debitoris nostris, and forgive us our trespass as we forgive them that trespass against us. So, in addition to this idea of trespassing and the Christ prayer of forgiving our trespasses of few ours, you see in her poem, the idea of ownership of land and also the Holstein bull and climbing the fences, which connects to the two previous poems I've read. 
but she takes hers in a way towards the idea of, of ecology. And so the common shared images trigger in each other and each poet differing responses. Thank you for joining me. If you're interested in my books, you may go to kenhated.org to find information on my book, Persimmon Sunday, as well as other books. Stay safe. See you next week on The Sunday Poems.